Hello! Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Notes by Kaya the Podcast. If this is your first time here, my name is Kaya and I'm a licensed clinical social worker, therapist, and children and family mental health coach where I help families understand the needs of children by meeting them where they are, fostering healthy minds through your interactions. Today, I actually have a special guest, and his name is Aaron Huey. Aaron is the founder of Parenting Teens That Struggle and the host of a number one parenting podcast, Beyond Risk and Back, which is Mental Health News Radio Network's highest rated show internationally. He is also a parent coach of Parents of Kids at Risk, a teen addiction interventionist, um, and facilitates powerful parenting events. He is a very happy husband and father of two young adults. Um, and we just were able to have a really great conversation about teenagers, their struggles often leading to substance abuse and addiction, and how he is intervening on that process. So sit back and enjoy some of the conversation. All right. Hello, Aaron. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me on your show. Oh, thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. So let's start out with you kind of telling the listeners a little bit about who you are, what you do. Well, uh, the the who I am, it, it ties directly into what I do, as I truly believe I am the sum total of my experiences. And those experiences include being abandoned by a biological father. Um, having a bonus dad who was awesome. Um, he adopted me when I was four. Uh, I was sexually assaulted at 18. I began uh, really using drugs heavily after that. Uh, prior to that, I had tried and experimented. And a lot of that desire to use drugs was to deal with my mental health issues, which I was very sensitive about. I was diagnosed as ADHD uh, in the 70s. Hooray. Um, and Ritalin was was the go-to. And so I was on a lot of Ritalin. And the side effects of that are no bueno. Uh, I was bullied mercilessly. And now that I've dated myself, bullying back in those days is a lot different than now because the attitude towards the bullies and the kids being bullied was, well, they're kids or boys will be boys or it was pretty brutal. So fast forward to about the age of 28 years old, where I hit rock bottom, embrace sobriety and the work that comes with recovery, uh, which is hard work. It's lonely work. It's exhausting work. And it's work where you have to confront your own shadow. And in confronting my shadow, uh, I truly found out that my maladaptive coping strategy was a survival strategy. What I did, I did to keep myself alive. Um, that turned in uh, my, my sobriety turned into a place of confidence and audacity, uh, opened a martial arts school, started running kids camps started running teen rites of passage programs, became a sober coach for teenagers, began to do interventions with teenagers, helping them and their families get clear on the next steps. And ultimately had a parent just say, can my kid just come live with you? And we, my wife and I said, yes. And she told her sister who told a friend and we got that phone call. And literally, and this was in 2009, a week later, we had six boys not ours living in our house and four on a wait list. And we were like, Oh my gosh. So I went and I talked to the courts and the alternative high schools that were supporting kids who weren't making it in regular high schools. Next thing you know, we had a steady stream of boys and then soon girls uh, that continued to fill a program, which for 16 years uh, in 16 years became the program fire mountain residential treatment center with the number one success rate in the United States, winning top 50 healthcare provider, top 100 innovator of healthcare in the US. And um, I'm sad to say that I'm closing the facility at the end of September due to some unbelievably horrific insurance gouging practices for property insurance. Um, it's, the insurance is forcing me out of business, but that is, um, 
It's the next phase of life is back to the roots, one-on-one with teens, one-on-one with families, uh, releasing a coaching app for parents at an extremely affordable price so that every parent can get the support and help. Because as you know, prevention is cheaper than recovery. And we've got to get these kids before they need recovery, which means we have to get the parents before we get the kids. Because in 20 years of working with teens and children and their parents, if parents don't change, the children will not, cannot change. And so that's that's the work. That's what's been uh, going on for the past, well, what is it, 52 years now. Wow, that is amazing. It's a lot. Um, but you are absolutely right that the parents have to buy in. And I get asked often, why is your business focused on parents when you work with children? And I'm like, well, what happens is me being a therapist, school social worker, um, I will meet with these kids. We will discuss all these strategies to do at home. And then they get home and it doesn't work in the environment because the environment's not changing. It's not shifting. So they come and we have the same issues. So I may be able to make a change in what we're seeing at school. But then at home, it's like starting over every day because going home is the exact same. One of the ways that I like to explain to, to parents is like when your child goes into a recovery process with a therapist, a social worker, a treatment program, an outpatient program, they're going to learn a new language. It's the language of recovery. It's a culture of recovery. So think of it. You speak French at home. The child starts going to a recovery, a therapist. They are literally going to start learning Spanish. Now, there's a few words in Spanish and French that they'll understand each other, but there's a lot there's going to miss. So if the child goes home to a French-speaking household and only speaks Spanish, they will not be able to survive. They will not be able to get their basic needs met through conversation and communication. So they're going to go back to speaking French because that's what they know. That's how they know to get their needs met. The behavior that kids have with their parents is habituated and conditioned. And every time it's repeated, it deepens the conditioning. So to expect a child to say, hey, you got to stop using, you got to stop cutting, you've got to stop running away. This depression is no good. This anxiety is not going to help. You've got to learn to speak the language of recovery as a parent. And the, the harsh way to say it to a parent, and I say this with all the love in my heart, everything you did with your child got you here. And if you're here talking to a social worker, a therapist, a parent coach, good job. Your kid's alive. They're, they're staring recovery in the face. If you keep doing what you've been doing, I'll see you again. (laughs) But that's not the goal here. The goal here is we move you on and away and forward and up. Absolutely. And it's so hard for parents to hear that, right? Like, what do you mean everything that I've been doing is wrong? (laughs) And it's not necessarily everything that you've been doing, but there are some major things that are causing some major issues for your child. And if you care about them, then you have to do something different. So what was the moment that you realized, and I think you kind of touched on this already, but um, that this is a problem and needed major attention? You know, it, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, we, we were running these teen rites of passage programs. We were taking kids up into the woods. We were doing crazy stuff with them. But ultimately, a rite of passage is a ceremonial event where adults are creating a bridge, a doorway for children to cross over or pass through into adulthood. So we had, we had these women and these men and these elders and all these people. And it was very ceremonial, very ritualistic and very successful. These camps were popular. They were amazing. And kids went back and just exploded with empowerment and self-assuredness and awareness, except for about 5% of them. 
5% would go back and we would see, we would get every camp, we would get call from one parent, two parents and say, my kid came home and they're using drugs like crazy. What happened? Did you guys talk about drugs there? And of course we did. Of course we had the don't do drugs, our version of it, which is yeah. more based on 50 cents uh, a book, the 50th law, his version of the hustle is the hustle. And now that I hustle with music and clothing, it's much different than hustling drugs. The teens responded to that, but this 5% that came home and just blew sideways. Mm. And we were like, oh, wait a second. There's a difference between motivation and therapy. There are state changes, which is about motivation. You can do this. You can do anything. You can become anything. And for a moment, you can embrace massive change. But the therapeutic process is about trait change. And that takes three months for one trait. And that's yeah. daily work. That's disciplined work. That's guided work. And there's a difference. And so we had made the mistake of including a, a therapeutic practice in, in a non-therapeutic environment, in a empowerment environment. And we like, we have to separate these. We can do empowerment, but we have to do therapy because there are kids that don't feel empowered and empowerment won't land on. You could say, take a bunch of sticky notes and write all the beautiful things about yourself and put them on the mirrors. But if they need a therapeutic intervention, they could write the words boiled cabbage on one of those sticky notes because it's not going to land. They're not in their prefrontal cortex. They're in their limbic brain and they're in survival mode and they will not empower until they start to thrive. And so that's what ha had us creating a therapeutic program in addition to the rights of passions kids. Yeah, I love that. And I think what a lot of parents don't understand is this process takes time. time. I see all the time parents will bring their kids and, okay, we want to do this. But then they're like, well, I'm not seeing enough change. Well, if your child is 15, that is 15 years that I'm having to dial back yeah. and rewire everything. And you want to see that in two months. Right. And it's not going to happen. So when you're inconsistent with showing up, when you are not changing that language at home, it's not going to work. So, um, and then especially with teens, a lot of people have the belief that teens are hard to work with. Um, why do you think that is? And what do you think is the impact of thinking that way? They're not teen parents, teens, parents are hard to work yeah, with exactly. because we, yeah, and I have, I have two, two kids. I, my, my children are 24 or 25 and 26 now. And I will tell you, I would much rather go back to the teen years and this 25 and 26 year old crap that I'm having to deal with now, because now I won't get into that, but teens are awesome to work with. We call them the PhD of therapeutic intervention because they are dealing with an environment, a life. Uh, things are not the way they used to be. I know we would like to think as adults while I was a teenager. Yeah. You didn't have to practice shooting drills in your school. Like, like you, you're, you're not, your your country was not at war from the time you were born. You're not watching an environment where race and political division is being fought in the streets again. And we are on the cusp of massive change and massive realization that things still need to change. And these kids, above all things, have access to the anarchy of the sum total of human knowledge on the internet. There, there is nothing they can't see. And if you divide the sum total of human knowledge of the internet into a hundred parts, 30 of those parts is pornography. They are being inundated with negative imagery, imagery that they are not developmentally ready to experience, handle, and process. It's not the same. So A, lose that concept. It is not the same. Number two, Teens are hard to work with because they're living in an environment that's not going to change. And we start with this conversation. We have to end with this conversation for a therapeutic process to go quickly. Something has to be modeled by the adults, the elders in the family. Everybody goes into recovery, not the child. The child is not the patient. 
The family is the patient. Treat the family, not the child. And that's hard because nobody wants to take the blame. No, the old therapeutic practice of tell me about your mother. Like that's, that's hard to deal with. But if mom doesn't change, kiddo's not going to change. You and I could think back to when we were kids and I bet neither of us could think of one conversation that happened before the age of 16 that changed our life. There is not one lecture. There's not one oratory, not one conversation that our parents sat us down and said, you need to understand something and then yelled at us for 30 minutes. And we woke up the next day going, you know what? Mom's right. I got to change my ways. We learn by modeling. We do what our parents do, or we do what our parents didn't do. And so if you want change in the house, you change. And you've got to make serious changes. You've got to lose the emotional leveraging of, of consequences. You have to take care of yourself. That means, are you drinking water? Are you sleeping? Are you eating healthy food? Are you moving your body? Are you breathing on purpose? Because if you're not doing those things and your kids start smoking cannabis, if you're not doing self-care first and your child starts self-harming, running away, uh, getting involved with a group of, of uh, children who are using crime as a maladaptive coping strategy for power, control, safety, freedom, and worth, then it won't matter. It will not matter what consequence you come up with. It will not land on your child. Absolutely. That is a hundred percent correct. Um, and you're right. I don't remember those lectures in the way of, oh my gosh, this was life changing. And I'm going to remember this forever. Nobody I does. do remember how much they yelled at me. I do remember some of those more negative sure. things out of those conversations. And that has shaped me which is why I talk a whole lot about your interactions with your child and why they matter. You know what video games do really, really well is get your child to focus on their strategy, right? If they're trying to go through a level in the game and their, their avatar keeps getting killed, they go back to a save point. They don't go back to the beginning of the game right? It's a realistic consequence that has short-term results because short-term is good for a teen brain, short-term ideas. Don't consequence for two months, consequence for two weeks and have another conversation in two weeks, consequence for two days and have another conversation. But with video games, when your character keeps getting killed and you go back to the save respawn point, there's no emotional process from the game. The game isn't like, oh, come on, what's your problem? Haven't we talked about this? Didn't I tell you there was something? And now you're back. Okay, well, give me your phone. Like you, the game doesn't do that. The game says, nope, start over. Nope, start over. And at some point, the child says, okay, it's not the game, it's me. And they focus on their strategy. The moment as parents that we come in with our emotional experience of what they did, I cannot believe you just got busted again. Like, did, did the minor in possession charge not teach you the last time? Here you are again in the principal's office. You know what? They're not going to focus on their strategy. They're going to focus on your emotion. And the moment they hit 12 years old, your emotions are not leveraged. They are not consequence because they have emotions. They have out of control emotions. They have huge emotions and they can amplify beyond what you think is possible. And yeah. they can that it becomes an emotional battle rather than, oh, a second MIP is going to be challenging for you. What's your plan? And you get them focused on their strategy, but that means you keep your emotions in check and you have your own support group, neighbors, friends that you call up and go, what the, I cannot believe yeah. this. I can't, oh my God, I'm going to get And your friend goes, okay, you good? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good what the hell am I going to do about this? I don't know. Let's talk about it. And you go through that process with other adults who have your level of development and okay. kids. So they understand. <laughs> and it just goes to show that they can respond and learn those kinds of things. I think we like to believe that, oh, they're a teenager. That's not going to work. But in that example that you just gave of the video game, they can. Absolutely. But is that what you're implementing? And how often and how long are you implementing it? Are you just saying, oh, that didn't work, move on? 
Yeah. Or are you sticking with it? They need reminders. They need you to stay consistent because it's hard to break habits sometimes. And so much of the conversation starts to center around a power struggle of you ask your kid what their plan is and they say some lame brained idea and you've got to come forth with your adult wisdom and how brilliant you are to tell them why their idea is wrong. Well, now they don't want to talk to you because all you've done is reinforce the idea that they can't do it. We learn through the crucible of conflict. We learn in the crucible of mistakes. We are hammered and forged and plunged into water until we are hardened like steel and polishable in our late 20s by the conflict we experience from the choices we make, not from the emotional battles we have with our parents. The hardest thing for a parent to do and the most powerful thing for a parent to do when a kid is failing class is to ask the kid, what's your plan? I don't know. I hate the class. I mean, if I don't pass it, I'm, I'm not going to graduate. Uh-huh. But you're, you figure a lot of things out. I've watched you figure things out for 15 years. So you'll figure this one out. How can I support you? Versus, oh, come on, just do your homework, right? You're playing too many video games. Don't play so much. They're not going to focus on what you're saying. They're going to focus on your energy. They're going to focus on your anger. They're going to focus on your frustration. That's not their strategy. You want them to change their strategy. Get them to look at it. Get them to try again. They're teens. That's how they learn. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think, other than, you know, some of the things that you just stated, um, is the most important thing to understand about teenagers? The, they are not using their brains. <laughs> I mean, we, we say that facetiously. We say that mm -hmm. angrily, but it's actually a fact. Their prefrontal cortex is not fully developed until for males around, I don't know if ever, but you know, <laughs> for, for males about 28 and for females around 25, that's the place where we process emotion. That's the place where we process thought. That's the place where we process information. Limbic brain, the survival brain allows us to do six things, fight, flight, freeze, faint, fornicate, and feed. It's a lizard's life. That's why we call it the lizard brain, the limbic brain, right? Fight and flight, we all know. Freeze and faint is something the military witnessed and said, oh, look at this. Like there are soldiers literally falling asleep in the middle of a battle. There are soldiers passing out consciously and not knowing what they did and coming to and their guns empty and, they, and they've been shot and they don't remember anything. And then the fornicate and feed are maladaptive coping strategies of drugs and cutting and promiscuity and all that type of stuff to fulfill a need in a short term, in, a, in an immediate moment. The prefrontal cortex, the part of your child's brain that is not fully developed yet, is the part that goes, now, wait a second, if I sneak out instead of clean my room like I agreed to, I'll get in trouble and won't be able to go to the party next week. And even though I want to see my friends tonight, I would rather go to that party next week. So I'm going to clean my room. Like adults barely can do that. Have you watched on TV how adults are acting right now? Yeah. Look at what <laughs> happens to the world when we remove the basic human need of safety. Hey, guess what? The people you love, the people you trust, the people in your house, your family, if they breathe on you, they could kill you. Like the whole world is dealing with the idea that I am not safe. You are not safe. We are not safe. And look at how we're acting. Look at the discord and the disconnect and the discontent and the dis-ease that we are suffering globally. So imagine what it's like to be a teenager and your brain still not fully developed, yet some of the decisions you make can have lifelong lasting consequences. And your parents think you're immoral. Because why you do moronic things? That's why. But yeah. if parents don't understand why teens make risky decisions, don't call them bad decisions. Don't call them bad choices. Unless you want some adult parent coach to be like, oh, you did that with your kid? That was a bad choice. Like that's a defensive, <laughs> violent, communicative tactic. It's risky. Hey, guess what? Using drugs is risky. Period. Some people survive it. Some people don't. It's a risk. But I will tell you, and this is what I want parents to truly understand. Everything is an expression of need. There are five human needs. Safety, power, connection, freedom, and worth. Those are developmental needs. 
I named them in order. Safety happens in the womb. Power happens in from born to two years old. Uh, connection happens up until 12. Freedom, 12 to 21. And worth uh, the rest of your life. Now, we have all those needs at all times. But I need parents to understand, I smoked cannabis on a daily basis as a result of traumatic experiences because of how I felt. And how I felt was suicidal. I wanted to die. But when I was high, I was happy. Music sounded great. Colors were amazing. I had a group of friends. I hung out in the woods. Uh, I sleep out. Oh, I didn't have a job. I was a terrible father. I was a crappy husband, but I was happy. Problem is, I also got sober, and then I was sad and suicidal again. So I had lots of people saying, Aaron, you got to quit using because you've got a kid. You've got a wife, you're supposed to have a job, but what I couldn't explain to him, what I didn't have the words for at 26, 25 years old is that if I don't use, I'll die. Now that was me getting needs met, safety, power, connection, freedom, and worth all by smoking cannabis, cutting. And if a parent sits for a second and says, what needs, which of those five Mets are need by self-harm? Sex. Which one of those five needs are met by sex? Running away. Which one of those five needs are met by running away? And it's met immediately. It's, I don't have to wait. I don't have to work. I get it now. Gimme, gimme, gimme. And you start using it because you can't get it at home. You can't get it at school. You can't get it with your own. You're depressed. Your brain chemistry is depressed. So you feel like crap. You've got anxiety. You think that whatever's going to happen next is threatening your life. So your body goes into survival mode. And you cut. And now you're not anxious. And your body goes, oh, well, that worked. So you do it again. And you do it again. There are no such thing as bad choices. There are choices that fulfill needs. Some of them are risky. Some of them are really risky. And if a parent goes in swooping in like a a fighter pilot to dive bomb a child who's making risky choices, it's going to make it worse. Yeah. I think that's what people in general don't understand about substance use is that it is to meet a need. Yes. Really everything that we do as individuals regardless of age is to meet a need but it's taking that time because as you said those parts of the brain like they're still developing the whole thing and so they haven't quite figured out that that's what's happening and so as the adults we have to be able to step in and see that and of course you know if you can't do it as a parent or you don't have that information as a parent, then you get a professional involved so that you can start putting those different things together. So then they can understand, oh, okay, this is why. So now let's tackle the real reason. Um, And that's just something that's not understood in general about substance use. It's like, oh, you just don't care. And all this stuff. And it's like, you're, no, there's so much more to it than that. You're hanging out with a bad group of friends. You're making bad choices. You, yeah. You're in the Which wrong. Which is to take off the parent's responsibility, by the right. way. That right. is, it couldn't be my child that actually wants to do this. You know, what, you know what I tell, what I tell parents every time, and I hear it constantly, as I'm sure you do. I don't like the group of friends my kids hang out with. I say very simply, you know, other parents are saying that about your kid, right? It's like, and no parent wants that because my next follow-up step statement is these are children. Stop bad-mouthing children. Get to know the parents. They're probably struggling just as much as you are. And that's where parents are like, yeah, I should probably do that. And they like, what did, no, not probably. Uh, I will tell you. The, the things that have been proven to keep kids away from risky behavior, and this is hard, but it's free. All of it's free. Number one, family dinners. Have dinner with your children. No phones, no TV. Put on some music. Just sit down and eat with your child. And I know I have a mortgage to pay for as well. And I know it's work. I know that's extra work. 
but it is the number one thing that keeps your kid away from risky behavior. Number two, knowing your kid's friends, parents, because the moment you become a community, the moment all your kids know that the parents are standing side by side, shoulder by shoulder, aligned towards keeping their children safe, regardless of political affiliation, religious affiliation, race, sexuality, orientation. The moment parents stand united to say, our job is to keep you safe. We are the parents. We are the adults. Then children go, all right, they're all watching us. So because somebody's watching. Number three, if you can afford it, something for your child to do between three o'clock and seven o'clock. Idle. This is an old statement. Idle hands do the devil's work. And we get home from school. Mom and dad aren't home from work yet. And kids sit on the computer. Why? Because it meets a need. Safety, power, connection, freedom, and worth. Connections met. They're getting likes on their last post. That's worth. Freedom, they get to look at whatever they want. And I can tell you where you could find me in the library when I was a kid. I was looking at the photography books in black and white. Like, you know, and there was a reason. And if your kid's alone on the internet, there's porn in every pocket. We have to acknowledge that there is porn in every pocket. The, the next thing uh, after something for your kid to do between three o'clock and seven o'clock is that the, it's the real honest to goodness education of brain chemistry, development, what drugs do, what alcohol does, what cutting does, what video games do really knowing the truth, not the scare tactic BS, not the cannabis will kill you and turn you into a zombie. No, it won't. Not for many, 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 many years. But I will tell you my cannabis use as a, as a, as a parent, as someone who has worked in treatment and recovery for 20 years, as someone who will vote for the legalization because it needs to be decriminalized, someone who will vote for it being a medicinal thing because it needs to be studied, I have to take injections twice a week because of the chemicals my body no longer produces because of cannabis. And it's, I didn't do coke. I didn't do heroin. I didn't do meth. I did weed every day, all day. And it does affect your brain. It does affect your body chemistry because anandamide THC copies anandamide. Nobody knows what I'm talking about, but the moment you understand what a neuromodulator is, you understand why cannabis copies it, and you understand how if I'm using cannabis, my brain doesn't produce it, and the side effects of depression and anxiety that are created because I am not producing a neuromodulator anymore, you don't understand what's going on. You- what are some of the main struggles that you see your teens face in the program, once you're able to break down all the external things that are obvious, what are really the main struggles that they're facing that lead them to where they are when they get to you? Unresolved trauma. I have not ever in 20 years worked with a child or an adult who hasn't been dealing with trauma. Not one as the science of epigenetics comes out and we understand how deep trauma runs in our DNA, how trauma that your great, great grandmother's traumatic experience has affected the DNA expression of your genetic lineage. There's a great test online and I know you know about it, but the ACE quiz, ACE adverse childhood experiences, it's free. It's 10 questions and you can do it for others. You can take it for yourself and you can take it for others because you're just answering 10 questions. And the moment you have three yeses, you're statistically more likely to abuse drugs, to self-harm, to run away, to have addictive personalities, to be compulsive, to be impulsive. And there's not a question on there that someone does. It goes, well, yeah, that happened to me. Trauma. They're dealing with unresolved trauma. The moment I connected to the fact that I was an abandoned child by my biological father, the moment I started resolving the abuse that I suffered in middle school through bullying, the moment I connected to my own sexual assault and what that betrayal violation was like, was the moment drugs lost their power in my life. So that's what's required. If we just go, Drugs are bad and you're doing drugs and you're, and you have to stop or you'll never be successful. 
well, we're shown musicians and artists all day long who are extremely successful and high. So that's not true. But what is true is a lot of these artists are extremely traumatized. And when they resolve their trauma, they won't need to use and they will still have their talent. Absolutely. And I think it's important to note that trauma takes on many different forms. And it's not about what you think about what someone else has experienced, whether that's trauma or not, it's how they responded to it, what their perception is. So what I see a lot is you didn't go through anything. Like you had this nice little family with two dogs and you know, all of this. And so what could you have possibly gone through that was traumatic? Well, it could be anything. It doesn't matter. It could have been that one move in your lifetime that completely rocked your world. You know, the, the research that the military did when they took soldiers and they, and they put all the biometric, uh, um, uh, 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 nodes all over their brain, 18 points of measuring brain activity in a live firefight, right? That they, that they, these, these soldiers were, these men and women were on the battlefield having their brains mapped while they were in combat, dying and killing. They took these same soldiers and they had them play a violent video game. Same parts of the brain. The exact same parts of the brain were being stimulated as actual combat. And so the military said, hang on a second. This means the brain doesn't know the difference between what you see and what you do. Now, they took that to Olympians. And they said, run this race and win. Fastest man runs the race. They map the brain. Have him sit in a chair and said, imagine yourself winning a race. They map the brain. Same parts of the brain are stimulated. So in looking at all of your things, a major part of what you talk about is the return home for these teenagers why do you think that is so important we've kind of talked about it a little but i'd like you to dive a little deeper well first of all there's i've never seen a kid ready to leave our program our program is a four-month minimum i've never seen a child uh not want to go home i've seen families who are afraid of things going back to the way things were before the child left. And that interferes with the homecoming process, but everybody wants their kid back. Our primary, our primary caregivers are essential to our process of, of development and healthy growth. So every child without a mother, every child without a father, there's your trauma. There's your root because primary caregivers are part of your developmental process. So If we do not make the coming home transition powerful, potent, that means formalizing and and creating a ceremony around ending one and beginning the other. That means that this other thing that we've begun, we've practiced. We, We do not isolate kids from their family and then send them home after four months. There are lots of opportunities to go home. When I do my coaching, in my coaching practice, I refuse to work with children if I don't work with the parents and I refuse to work with parents and not the children, because this is a family recovery process. The, the kids have to see that the parents have done their work and the parents have to see that the kids are done their work. When will I be able to trust my child about the same time your child's about ready to trust you? Mm-hmm. That's, that's what this, that's what goes. This doesn't mean kids have all the power. We are still the adults. These are still our homes. The phone your kid is using is something you're paying for. The internet your kid is using is something you're paying for. You don't like what's happening. Shut it off. Can get back to this in a couple of weeks, but I got to see two weeks without with really good behavior. And then next week, before we stop, before we start the video games back up, we're going to have a long talk about being realistic in school and healthy behavior. Well, I don't want to have that talk. I just want to play my games. I understand. But if that's the case, then I'll just make the decision without you. But I'd really like you to be a part of this decision process. That's hard to do when you're mad. Mm -hmm. So while the kids are with us and the parents are still so mad that now they have to pay for treatment because their kids' bad choices got so far, our work is to convince these parents, hey, you got four months to clean up your act. 
for you to stop making bad choices, for you to come to the table with a family behavior contract, not a new list of rules for your kid to follow and clever consequences, but you come to the table saying, you know what? I'm recognizing that I've been emotionally parenting and consequencing you, and that's not effective. What is effective is connection before correction. What is, what is effective is alliance before compliance. So I'm not going to yell anymore. And if I do yell, here are my consequences. But if I do really good and not yell, here's my reward. Because that's how contracts work. There are consequences and there are rewards and everybody's under contract and everybody's expected to show up to the table having made the change. I had a mom who did the no yelling because she was yelling. She had an adoptive daughter. Adoptive daughter was spinning sideways, not having access to prime, prime influence parents. And the, the mom was yelling and she's a brilliant therapist. She was just like all of us, right? The, the shoemaker's children go barefoot. That's the same, yeah. right? So mom says, I'm not going to yell. And if I do yell, I'm not allowed to drive to work for two weeks. And work was a half hour bike ride away. And that uh-huh. meant mom had to change her days and mom and daughter get into it because it's going to happen. And mom yells and daughter goes, mom, you broke contract. And mom said, you're right. I did. I'm sorry. Let's end this conversation now. Come back to it when I got my crap together and I'm putting the car keys in the safe. Won't use them for two weeks. For two weeks, mom rode her bike to work half hour to half hour from. She said two things happened. She said, number one, I lost weight. And that was my goal because I'm starting my day and ending my day with a brisk bike ride. She said, number two, I had a half hour to think about how much I missed my car and why I didn't get access to my car. And I didn't get access because I'm yelling at my daughter who's struggling. If my daughter is struggling and I'm yelling at them, and this is something I say to parents and parents aren't going to like me saying this, but I don't care because I, I, it has to be said. If you are a power struggling with a teenager who is struggling in life because of trauma, and every time you guys have a conversation, there's another power struggle. At some point, we have to ask the question, who's really losing their mind? The teenager that's struggling or the adult that's power struggling with the struggling teenager? And that's not a fun answer because we are the adults, right? We are in charge until we're not, until this child is running the house, until the child's emotions are running the house, not our logic, until the child's fear is running the house, not our love. That's, that's where we lose our homes. You want your house back, take it back, but you will never take it back with, with screaming. You will never take it back with anger. You cannot hate something into something you love. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's a good, um, and so, so true, obviously. Um, so what are some of the parents that, what are some of the things that the parents should be doing in this preparation and understanding that this is, we're not just talking about just your program, but if they're coming back from any kind of residential treatment, whether that's for mental health or substance use, whatever it might be, um, what are some of the things that the parents should be doing in preparation for that? You know, we're talking about your kids coming home from school. We're we're talking about your kids coming home from your ex's house. We're talking about, because my answer will always be the same for this, whether your kids at school and coming home and you have to have an uncomfortable conversation because you searched the room and found a pipe, whether your kids coming home and they won the game yesterday and you're so proud of how well she's doing and et cetera, et cetera. You still have to be doing these things. And I, there's, there's a three and five format here. And the three is you take care of yourself first. You take care of your adult relationship second, and then you take care of your child third, because that's how you're going to do your best with your child. If you're practicing self-care. You and I are in a place of every day of children bringing to us all kinds of just heaviness. And if we don't practice self-care, we carry that home with us, right? It's like everything that happens becomes a sticky note. 
know, this kid says they're cutting. This kid says they think they're pregnant. This kid says that they think this, this kid says, you know, their dad abused them. This kid says they're being bullied. This kid's, and you just put another sticky note for everything that happens during the day that's causing you stress, everything. And then say every five minutes of exercise takes off one of those. But if you watch the news, put another one on. If you go home and you have wine, maybe you can take half of one off because you're not really taking it off. You're just pretending it's not all there. Mm -hmm. But then you go to bed after binge watching 16 episodes of God knows what else. And you wake up the next morning and you start putting sticky notes back on. Children are no different. And so the only way to help children help themselves is to take those sticky notes off yourself. And that means one of five things or all of five things. And you have to do these things on purpose because you do them on accident all the time, but do them on purpose and you change the game. Drink water, sleep better, eat healthy food, move your body and breathe on purpose. Take a minute and just sit a minute, 10 seconds, doesn't matter. And all that means that you're oxygenating your brain and you've taken 10 seconds for yourself. Now you can take a sticky note off. Then you can maybe kind of sort of think about your kids. But before you do that, get yourself a community, get yourself some people that you can call and say, Oh my God, Glover, I'm losing my mind here. You got to talk this through with me. And you're right. All right, Aaron, hit me with it. And I'm like, this kid's parents are just <laughs> da, da, da. And you're like, oh my God, I totally know. And pretty soon you and I start laughing because that's your first sign that you're recovering is that you're able to laugh about it. You're able to crack a smile. You're able, and now your brain's back online. Then go take care of your kids. So self-care adult relationship care, then your kiddos do it in the right order. Do it in the right way. Really take care of yourself. first. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. So we're wrapping up. I've enjoyed this conversation so much. It's always good like to talk to people that have kind of the same ideas and really have come to the same realizations. It's always a breath of fresh air. Um, and so I know that you said that your facility is being shut down, but what are kind of the next steps? What should people know about your sure. program and how to reach you? Sure. Well, I'll tell you, the facility is being shut down because my property insurance went from $40,000 a year to $370,000 a year. Oh my gosh. My liability insurance went from $20,000 a year to $160,000 a year. The insurance companies do not want to help me do what I do. So it's been devastating. And this actually, the, the, the ax came down on August 27th. So it's been really a roller coaster. But I am very desirous of getting onto the front lines of prevention with families. And I have been for a while. I have a private coaching practice. I'm often full. So you can always check in to see if time with me is supportive of you and your family. But I have a free podcast called Beyond Risk and Back. It's for parents of teens that struggle. It's, it's talking to people like you. And Glover, I want you on the show. Beyond Risk and Back, free podcast, 220 episodes already, every expert I can get my hands on. Number two, I have a Facebook page that's free. It's a private group called Parenting Teens That Struggle. I put up videos there. I put up the podcast there. There are 1,300 parents of kids who are struggling on that page every day, checking in with each other, saying, this just happened last night. And other parents go, hey, I tried this, or I said this, and I, this didn't work, and blah. And it's just parents helping parents. I moderate it. So I'm the one letting the parents in, and I'm the one keeping the people who want to sell you their product out, because this is a place for parents to help parents. The third thing I have is if you go to brabapp.com, B-R-A-B-A-P-P.com, I have everything I have ever taught parents in 20 years. And I run parenting workshops four times a year, big, massive 
in, in group or on zoom three day events, but everything I have ever taught parents, I have put into an online training course and it's $37 because I want every parent to know. And whether your kids in the absolute red, you don't know if they need treatment. You're pretty sure they do. It's really, really bad. They've tried suicide twice. I've got a segment for you. If your kid's in the yellow, just doing some risky stuff and you're afraid it could go really bad or could get better. I got that parenting course. And then I have the green, your kid's doing well, but man, you know, they're, they could do great. I've got that one. And it all comes together. You get all three for that $37 because I want you to know everything. So it's, it's everything I've ever taught. So those are my three brab app.com B R A B A P P.com. The podcast beyond risk and back and parenting to parenting teens that struggle a free Facebook support. Awesome. Thank you so, so, so much. I appreciate it. This was great. I'm glad we got a chance to do this. And of course, I would love to be on your podcast as well. So we will do that. Um, And thank everybody for listening. All right. Thank you so much for listening. If you stayed for the whole thing, I appreciate you. I know it was a lengthy conversation but it was so good, right? So if you enjoyed this and other episodes, please be sure to share it, rate us on whichever podcast platform that you're listening on. I truly appreciate it. It helps us tremendously. If you have a question or a topic you would like me to cover, just email me podcast at nosebakaya.com. If you have a specific question you would like me to help you with, also be sure to connect with me on social media at nosebakaya on Instagram and Facebook. You can also join the private Facebook group, Parents Raising Mentally Healthy Children. And we are also adding teachers, educators, professionals, to the Notes by Kaya community because it really takes the whole system to get better to really help these children. So I have lots of workshops coming up. So be sure that you sign up on the website so that you get all that information on how to sign up. And I will talk to you on the next one.